All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben, and I am the youth director here as well as the dinner church director. And it is so great to see you all here on this beautiful Palm Sunday morning. Uh, just as a reminder, as you walked in, you received a bulletin. And inside that, if you open up, there's some blank space for you to take notes, draw, ask questions, or do whatever that helps you um, stay engaged. And then also there's a white paper. And afterwards, that, that's our connection card. Afterwards, uh, I'll have some questions to reflect upon. And it'd be great if you could answer your questions in there, write down what you need prayer for, uh, what, how the sermon spoke to you, what you're hearing. And if you drop them off in the wooden boxes as you exit, that'd be great. That way we can know what people are thinking, how people are processing, what to pray for. It just helps us know how to better serve you, really. Um, so I'd really appreciate if you did that. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are king, but you are a king like no other king this world has ever seen. And I pray that we would be blown away by who you are and by just the sheer insanity of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. So today is Palm Sunday, and it's also the final week in our Lenten series called The Jesus Table. And so we're going to talk about Palm Sunday, but also view it through the lens of the Jesus table um, and what it is that we remember and say as we partake of communion and as we eat with people around us. To begin with, think to yourself, what is the number one thing that Jesus talked about? Number one thing. The kingdom of God. Yes, I heard somebody in the back saying it. The kingdom of God. Jesus said it all the time. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Or in the gospel of Matthew, he says kingdom of heaven, which is the same thing. Matthew just didn't like writing God. <laughs> See, he, had, he felt like it was disrespectful. But, so he'd write kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then also Jesus had all these parables like uh, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that's planted in the ground and then grows into this massive tree. Or the kingdom of God is like dot, dot, dot. He talked about the, the kingdom of God all the time. And we're going to talk about how this kingdom of God is really seen most thoroughly in the Jesus table. And that the Jesus table is a time to proclaim the kingdom of God to everyone around us. But to begin with, we need to understand the context. We need to know what the disciples and the people of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas were thinking, what they're feeling, and what the narrative and the story that they were living in was. And to do that, I need you to clear your minds. I know if you're like me, you've grown up in church or you've been in church a long time and you've heard these sermons about Jesus, you've heard about his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and all the crazy things he's taught so many times that we sort of lose the awe and wonder of it. We forget about how, it's not just like, oh yeah, God became human and then he died, all right, then he resurrected. I mean, what? <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. That's, that's insane. So uh, let's try and clear our minds and look at this whole story with fresh eyes. And we're going to start from the very beginning. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the very first line of the Bible. And then he created ha uh, animals and land and the sun, the moon, the stars, and he separated the land and there's rivers running through it. He created mountains. Then the pinnacle of creation, he created humankind. And it says he created them in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. Now, what does that mean to be created in the image of God? There's so many different views on this and it's talked about a lot. We say we're image bearers. We talk about the imago Dei, meaning the image of God. And we all have that within us. We're all created in the image of God. And like I said, there's many different views on this, but one of the things is that during this time when Genesis was written, that's the book that this is found in, 
there were kings. Most people lived in kingdoms, and there was these kings that ruled over. And the kings would say, I am the image of God. That's what they'd say about themselves. I am the image of God, meaning I get to define good and evil, and you owe your submission and your loyalties to me and follow what I say because I have divine authority. I'm the image of God. And then they would make idols of themselves and tell people to worship them. And what's fascinating is the Hebrew word for idols is tselem. And tselem is the word that is used for image in this passage. <laughs> and we translate it image. So it could also be we are idols for God. That's why God said, don't create any idols. Don't worship idols because I've already made some. You are my representatives and you are my kings here on earth. He created this kingdom and it was perfect and there was peace and he was ruling and we were partnering with God to better creation and to, uh, it shows us as being almost like farmers. <laughs> That's what it talks about in the beginning, taking care of the earth. That's what we created to be. But then, as you know, things didn't go like that. Adam and Eve decided to define good and evil for themselves and there was a strain in the relationship and they ended up leaving the garden. And immediately, the next story, after they leave the garden, we hear the story of Cain and Abel. And this kingdom of God that God had created and that he was ruling over all of a sudden became the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel are Adam and Eve's sons and Cain kills Abel because he's jealous of him. Kills his own brother. <laughs> then he runs off to a city, starts, actually starts the first city that we hear about in the Bible and he has multiple children. And generations later, in the same little passage in the Bible, it talks about this guy named Lamech. And Lamech says, oh, uh, Cain didn't do anything like I did. He's boasting to his multiple wives, it says. He's like, I killed somebody just for touching me. I killed many people for pretty much no reason. And he's boasting in his violence. He's boasting in the fact that he has so much power and power over others that he's able to kill for no reason at all. And things just spiral out of control. And God is saddened and his heart is grieved. And he's angry. And then he calls out this guy named Abraham. And you know, many of us know of Abraham. God calls him out and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, the entire world is going to be blessed. How is the whole world going to be blessed through one guy? And that's the story of Jesus, right? Jesus is who God had promised Abraham. And so this story continues. Abraham's descendants turn into Israel. And Israel becomes about two million strong. A ton. They're a huge nation. But they're in slavery in Egypt. This kingdom of Egypt that was built on, on, on wars and the backs of slavery. Were the, and those slaves were the Israelites. And God heard them calling out and he rescued them and he redeemed them out of Egypt and he brought them into a new land. And he said, I'm going to make you into a nation of priests. You're going to be set apart. You are going to be the new kingdom. You are going to be a light to the nations and my representatives here on earth. Adam and Eve messed up and I am going to help you do what they were supposed to be. But, of course, if you read, seriously, read the book of Judges. This is after he took them out and put them in the land of Canaan. It is just cycles and cycles of just horrendous violence, of child sacrifice, idol worship. They pretty much just became like all the kingdoms around them. They weren't a nation of priests. They weren't set apart. They were just like everyone else. And then God gave them a king. The first one was Saul. Saul didn't do too great. And then David became king, and David was a man after God's own heart. And that's what it tells us. And with David, uh, David asked one time, he said, God, you know, I really want to worship you, and I want to build a temple for you. You know what God says to him? He says, no. Why? Because you've shed too much blood. What? All right. So you've shed too much blood, but through you, from one of your descendants, one of your sons, I will create an eternal kingdom, and an eternal ruler will rule over it, and my presence and my reign 
will be seen through him. Thinking, all right, cool. And David's excited. He's like, that's awesome, so great. And then the next son is Solomon, and Solomon starts out so well, and he's so wise. But then he starts getting slaves from Egypt. He's enslaving his own people, and he's building the temple of God through slave labor. What? That's what it talks about. He pretty much goes right back to the way the, what the Egyptians did to them and what all the kingdoms around them are doing. And the kings after him are just spiraling out of control. And it's getting worse and worse. And then there's these prophets, and they're calling them out throughout this. They're like, come on, stop it. This isn't what you're called to be. You're called to be the nation of Israel, to be set apart, to be holy, to be a light to the nations. But you're just like everyone else around you. Like, but there's a Messiah coming who will deliver you. There's a Messiah coming that will give us a new heart and the ability to be the people of God and to manifest the kingdom of God. And during all this, they get conquered by multiple nations. Egypt comes through and conquers them. Assyria conquers them and exiles many of them. Then Babylon overthrows Assyria and there's a new kingdom in town. And they exile the people of Jerusalem, take them off to Babylon. And the temple is completely destroyed. And there's Persia. And then finally, Rome. And there's other ones in between there. And all these kingdoms are just warring with each other. They're just killing thousands and maybe millions of people. And we come to the time of Jesus and the Romans are just tyrannical. I mean, they're crucifying people by the thousands alongside the roads. They're taxing everyone so heavily that many people in Israel at the time were unable to even eat. That's why whenever Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, that, that was like life-saving for them because here there's Rome who has conquered them and is making tax them so much they can't eat. Then here's Jesus, the king, who's feeding them. And before Jesus is born, Gabriel, the angel, comes to Mary and he says, um, you're going to give birth to a son. She's like, what? You know, <laughs> that's weird. I'm not married. And she's confused. And he says, and he is going to take the throne of his father David and his kingdom will have no end. It's the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Gabriel is directly referencing that promise that God had made to David hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And now we're excited. We're thinking, yes, the kingdom of God is coming. God is going to overthrow these Romans, and God will be reigning here in Jerusalem, and we'll be able to go back to the way things were in the time of David and Solomon. But as you know, God had a much different plan. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, I'm the Messiah. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he gathers 12 uh, disciples around him, like the 12 tribes of Israel. It's like he's creating a new Israel. And then, I mean, if anybody, if somebody just came along and started saying that, you probably wouldn't believe him. But Jesus is resurrecting people. Blind people are seeing. Crippled people are walking. Lepers are being healed. It's hard not to believe him, right? (laughs) And that's when we come to the triumphal entry. And that's what we remember on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. This is when Jesus rides into town on a donkey. And people worship him and praise him. Now imagine you're an Israelite at this time. Really put yourself in their shoes. Many times I think we're like, oh yeah, the Israelites thought that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans, but little did they know Jesus had much better plans in store. And we sort of look negatively upon it. And we're right, that God had a different plan. But be honest. Imagine if in World War II, there's a whole show about this. In World War II, the Nazis won and we are conquered by Nazi Germany. And we're living underneath their rule. We're not allowed to worship freely. Uh, we're oppressed all the time. We can't really do anything. There's not enough food. People are starving. We're poor. Everyone's uh, fighting to survive. That, there's a show on Amazon called Man in the High Castle that's all about this. Now imagine you're in that situation. I would be wanting 
that country to be overthrown, all of them to be kicked out, and many people to die, if I'm being completely honest. I don't want to think that, but that's probably what I would think. That's what I would desire. So let's go to the triumphal entry. This is in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verses 35 through 40. Luke 19, verses 35 through 40. It's also up on the screen. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In some of the other gospels, it actually says Hosanna, and that's what we're singing today. And I think I've always thought Hosanna means we praise you, we worship you, bless you. But the real meaning of Hosanna is, come save us, we beg. I beseech thee, save me. That's what it means. Come save us. They were in desperate situation and he was their Messiah. And they wanted him to save them. And he doesn't deny it. He never says, I'm not here to save you. Or I'm not the king. He doesn't say that. He acknowledges it. He takes it. And whenever the Pharisees say, tell them to be quiet, he says, no, if they're quiet, the very stones will cry out. See, Jesus knows that he is the coming king, that he is the ruler of the world, and that all creation is longing for it. It's hoping for him to assume the throne in the kingdom of God to reign forever. The people are fed up of this Roman Empire. They're fed up of being conquered by so many different nations, and they're ready for something new, and they want their vengeance. And here comes the Messianic king walking into Jeru- and riding into Jerusalem. Jesus says that he's who they've been expecting. Like we talked about, he backed it up with all these miracles. But what is he teaching? What is he teaching? Well, we've talked about a lot of these teachings in this Jesus Table, ser- uh, Jesus table sermon series. First one, uh, I talked about how God used the table and food to enter in relationship with us. That when God became human and Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, he ate with people. That he sat around the table with people completely different than him. That's sort of weird. God becoming human and eating with people. And then Greg talked about how everyone has betrayed Jesus, not just Judas. And that even in the betrayal, Jesus ate with them. He sat at the table with them. He loved them. And then Rich talked about how we've been told to look out and see who is missing from the table. Who isn't here? And that the table is especially for those who have been marginalized by society. By those that feel as though the society has spurned them and that they're outcasts. But Jesus says, no. The table is for you. I am for you. And then Brian talked about how um, Jesus was upturning social norms. That many times there was a certain hierarchy to the way you set. So if you're a well-respected person, you set in the spot for the person of high honor. But Jesus was saying, nope. If you have a lot of honor, you sit in one of the other spots. You don't sit uh, in spots of honor, but sit in the humble positions. And then Jesus is also telling us crazy things like the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That you have to love your enemies and do good to those that hate you. That you should love your neighbor and then he gives an illustration and pretty much everyone, your enemy even. (laughs) He says that to be great, you must first be a servant. And then in the Gospel of John, he gets down on one knee 
and washes his disciples' feet. Just think about that for a moment. God, as human, the king of the universe, washed his disciples' dirty, smelly feet. All these things are demonstrations of what the kingdom of God is like. But it seems odd and different than any other kingdom this world has ever seen up until now. That is why many people call it the upside-down kingdom. See, it's a kingdom where everything is turned inside out. Everything is inverted. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Now let's fast forward a couple days. Things are starting to heat up in Jerusalem, and Jesus is a pretty polarizing figure. You have a lot of people that love him and a lot of people that hate him. And so he sends his disciples into Jerusalem, and he says, uh, prepare me a Passover meal. Prepare Passover meal for us. And so we come to the Last Supper. And this is in Luke 22. Luke 22, verses 14 through 22. Luke 22, verses 14 through 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out, for you, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Here he says that first he has to suffer before the kingdom of God arrives. And I'm sure if I was a disciple, I'd be thinking, all right, yeah, I can, you know, if we're going to overthrow a nation, there's gonna be, it's going to be challenging. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be suffering. But then he's talking about how the kingdom of God is coming soon because he's not going to eat until the kingdom of God arrives. Whoa, that means this is fast approaching. I'm getting excited. But Jesus seems a little anxious and scared and worried. What's going on here? And as you know, that night, he was betrayed, he was arrested, and he was flogged and beaten and humiliated and shamed publicly. And then he was crucified the next day. And in the Gospel of Luke, what's fascinating is Luke portrays Jesus' resurrection as his ascension to the throne, as his enthronement. Because he talks about how Jesus got a purple robe placed on him. And a robe in general is only for wealthy people, but a purple robe? I mean, we're talking like royalty. There was times in the Roman Empire where actually it was outlawed to wear purple unless you were part of the emperor's family. And here they're putting a purple robe on Jesus, and then they're putting a crown of thorns on his head. Not a crown of gold and gems, but a crown of thorns where blood trickles down. And then above his head they put Jesus, King of the Jews, as a plaque above his head. And they crucified him. All that Jesus had been teaching led up to this moment. He preached an upside-down kingdom, and when it came time for the kingdom of God to arrive in full power, what else could we have expected? There was no other way than for Jesus to do what he had been talking about. He laid down his life for all. He became the servant, obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. He loved all to the very end, even those who had betrayed him, so much so that he allowed them to kill him. 
He didn't fight back with power over tactics, but instead responded with love and serving. He chose to actively love everyone in that moment. This is the upside-down kingdom, and God's will and his reign was realized in this moment. And you all know what happens, how it ends. We know what we are celebrating next Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. And all the kingdoms up to this point have done the complete opposite of what Jesus is doing. Every kingdom up until now has been built on the death of many, many people. It's been built on conquering others, on slavery. And yet, here God creates the kingdom on the death of one, one person. And that death was the king himself. It's completely inverted. It's an upside-down kingdom. But what does that mean for us today? Paul talks about, in 2 Corinthians, how we are supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. That we are to be ministers of reconciliation to the world. But how can we expect to be ambassadors for a king and not follow in his ways? If God reconciled the entire world to himself through allowing evil to be wrought upon him and dying, how can we expect to be ambassadors through coercive force? And to be honest, us as Christians have a history of doing this. How horrible is that? That Jesus proclaimed this upside-down kingdom and died for everyone. And then we go about and we force people uh, to become followers of Jesus. And there's the crusades and there's slavery and just horrendous atrocities that we've committed in our history. We've completely abandoned the call to live as separate, to live as holy and set apart and as a nation of priests here in this world. Because really, the ultimate will of our king was was revealed on the cross. And, you know, this is really uh, hard for me. (laughs) Sometimes I love it, sometimes I hate it. For example, I love fantasy books. I've loved fantasy books since I was a little kid, still read them now. I'm a huge fantasy book nerd. You can seriously come talk to me about it sometime. I love them. But this is, like, there's a certain genre within fantasy books called coming-of-age stories. And this is the classic plot line. There's a young boy or young girl Something happens, then they find out they have some powers or they're really good at fighting or something like that, and then they are raised up and all the while there's some evil person in the background, maybe many evil people, and then they're training to fight them, but they're trying to be good, and they're holding back. They're not uh, fighting as like the other people. They're trying not to be like the people they're fighting, like the evil uh, group that they're fighting. But eventually, something happens and they're pushed into a corner. Maybe the person they love is kidnapped or killed or they're about to die themselves. And then they just unleash havoc. And they defeat everyone and kill many people. And inside there's like, yes, it was justice. They really didn't have any other choice. They were pushed into a corner. But Jesus was pushed into a corner. In fact, somebody yelled out to him while he's up on the cross, if you truly are the son of God, then come down off the cross. But he didn't. And there's not a doubt in my mind that he could have if he wanted to. Instead, his last words were, Jesus, or God, forgive them, for they know not what they have done. He chose to love all the people around him until the very end. I was listening to this podcast about a week ago uh, on the Upside Down Kingdom, and they were, there were these two guys, and they're talking, and talking about this concept. And one of them said, you know, it was really interesting. Recently, my son, who was five years old, came up to me and said, Dad, you know the best way to beat a bad guy? And the dad's thinking, oh, you know, it's going to be like swords, guns, bows and arrows, things like that. And then his son says, no, you 
turn the bad guy into a good guy. Man, that is the gospel in a nutshell. It's turning bad guys into good guys. Jesus has revealed himself to us through his death, and it changes something within us. But you have to recognize that it's not active. It's not as though Jesus just rolled over and allowed people to just do whatever he wanted to them. It was very active. It was subversive in his love. He actively chose to love. He actively chose to bless. And he actively proclaimed justice and freedom to all around him. But he had a commitment to love within the commitment for justice and freedom. There's nothing passive about it. It's just utter intentional insanity. <laughs> Seriously. It makes no sense. And as I think about it, I'm just overwhelmed and I'm awed by what he did and the implications of it. But at the same time, I'm sort of, I sort of rebel against it. It's sort of like a, a bug attracted to the light. The cross is the light and I'm just in awe of the beauty of it. Wow, that's so cool. I want to do that. I want to, I, I want to live a life that is free. I want to live a life where the cross is the center of everything and I'm drawn towards that light. But then something happens and I turn away. Maybe I start worrying about my own life where I see things happening and I get some anger inside me. In fact, this happened yesterday morning or yesterday afternoon. I was preparing and thinking about this sermon yesterday morning, reading through it, praying about it, and then I Skyped my parents or FaceTimed my parents. My parents live in Africa and they were telling us that, uh, that there was this, uh, they just moved to this new neighborhood and that there was a serial raper in their neighborhood the past few weeks. And within me, I had literally just been praying and thinking about this, and all I wanted was this person to be caught, and not just caught and put in jail, but I wanted justice to be done to him. I wanted him to experience what he had done to others. You know? It's messed up. Why was it that within me, one moment I'm drawn to this light, and the next moment I'm going the opposite direction? And that's why the Jesus table is so important. The Jesus table is when we reaffirm our commitment to this upside-down kingdom. See, God created us to be rulers, as we talked about in the beginning. Created us as kings. And Jesus showed us what it means to be king. It means the death on the cross. It means washing each other's feet. And that's why we're practicing it this Thursday. That's the kingdom of God. And I think that my, me being drawn to the beauty of the cross and that light is the image of God within me saying, this is what you're created for. You weren't created for the violence. You weren't created to coerce and manipulate others. You were created to love others. You were created to rule on God's behalf by your love. And that was shown by Jesus. But it's not easy. And I won't deny that uh, there's times in my life where I get really nervous whenever I think about this. In fact, I was talking to Greg, one of the co-lead pastors, a week ago about this. And I was like, you know, like I want to say I'm committed to this, but that's a huge commitment. Like, what am I committing to? That's scary. I don't know if I can say that, even though I think about it all the time and I want to see I'm committed to it. And Greg said to me, he said, well, I think that you should just commit to the daily things, to the small things. Commit to leading this life where your God and the king you follow died for everyone. Commit to this every day. As opposed to thinking on the long run and all the huge implications that that has, just commit to the small things. And that's what we do at the Jesus table. We, re- we reaffirm our commitment to this way of life. We reaffirm our allegiance to the king and the kingdom of God. And we go out and we invite people in, and we eat together at the table, and we practice the upside-down kingdom with everyone around us. The cross reminds us that we're called to be something better. We're called to a new way of being human, and it's beautiful, and it's scary, 
and it's really challenging. So at this point, I'd like to invite the worship team up. Um, we're going to finish with a song. I have a couple reflection questions for you to think about. And also I have one closing thought. So here's some questions to think about um, after this, after we pray. Who is somebody that you find hard to love? Who is somebody that you find hard to love? Who is somebody that you desire, like, something bad to happen to them? I know we all have it. (laughs) I certainly do. It can be somebody in your life that you see regularly, or it can be somebody on TV. Who is somebody that you find hard to love? Well, slide. It's not working. Okay. All right, there you go. And what is the cross calling you to do? What is the cross calling you to do? See, the Jesus table is beautiful. It's insane. (laughs) And it reminds us continually of our calling as image bearers to rule the world, but in the same manner that Jesus became king, by choosing to love, choosing to forgive, choosing to turn bad people into good people, as Jesus has done to us. Not choosing to simply get rid of the bad people, but choosing to love them. That's what the gospel is all about. That we were once estranged from God, but he showed us that that's really not the case. And he died for us. And he calls us to a new way of life. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can be the kingdom of God here on earth. Let's pray. God, this is amazing. Um, It's beautiful. It's challenging. But it's just amazing. And I thank you so much that your whole plan for saving the world and saving the cosmos and the universe was through you giving everything up. And I pray that we would be ambassadors for you, that we would leave this building and that we would represent the upside-down kingdom of God in radical ways. In Jesus' name.